Welcome to this episode of Innovating Employment, a podcast by and for workforce development professionals, brought to you by the Ontario Centre for Workforce Innovation. This podcast series asks leaders from across the workforce development sector to share their ideas and solutions for meeting Ontario's workforce needs. I'm your host and producer, Noah Snyderman. On this bonus episode, we look back at our first year and revisit a favourite moment from each episode. We've had the opportunity to speak with a variety of workforce development professionals from across the sector on topics from the future of work, apprenticeships, to making work practices more inclusive for persons with disabilities. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been with us all year, we hope this show will point you in the direction of an episode in our catalogue that will be interesting and useful to you. On our first episode, we were joined by Susanna Williams, an independent workforce development consultant and founder of BridgeEd Strategies. We sat down with Susanna in Toronto to discuss skills-based hiring, innovate and educate, and the Close It Summit. In this clip, Susanna shares why she believes that a common hiring practice is flawed. Hiring is broken. Um, Employers don't know how to hire people. They have increasingly started asking for degrees, but if you ask an employer why they ask for a degree as a requirement, they'll tell you, well, because we think that people on our staff would be more comfortable if they were people like them. Or I've heard of that university, so I know that if a person has a university degree, they probably know how to do Excel. That is a really stupid way to hire people. That doesn't align at all with the job that needs to be done. Right. And employers at the same time keep complaining about what they call the skills gap. We can't find qualified employees. Well, when you talk to employers, I love employers, they're very, very nice. They'll talk about skills. They'll talk about higher education. But what they actually mean is they're having trouble finding people who know how to show up at work on time, put their phones away, be respectful to their boss do what is asked of them. Like, really, they're having trouble finding grown-ups to do the work that needs to be done. With more soft skills. Right. So they talk about the hard skills, but uh, there's an expression that people get hired on hard skills and fired on soft skills. What actually matters are soft skills. Right. And resumes don't do a darn thing to communicate what your soft skills are. Correct. (laughs) On the second episode of Innovating Employment, Amy Hahn, Director of Employment Programs at the Nova Scotia Department of Labor and Advanced Education, joined the program to discuss how they developed a collaborative approach to reforming their employment and training landscape, using a method that empowered service providers to gather together and determine how to restructure employment services in their communities. In this clip, Amy describes this dialogue with service providers and how the case for reorganization was presented. So service providers told us they had the expertise and skills to deliver the services to specialized populations. They wanted to be representative of those populations. They wanted to be part of the solution in terms of this transformation. They wanted to have input. They wanted to have some freedom to innovate um, because government had in the past place too many boxes and administratively burdensome um, things on their plates. They uh, wanted to access more professional development. They wanted to have youth and employers as their key client segments, and they could replicate their best practices that they each had across the province. So we took all that in and what we fed back to them in November and said, we heard you. 
Here's what we'd like you to do. Here's the case for change. You know what the case change is. We want to innovate, though, toward a vision of a skilled, engaged, and productive workforce for Nova Scotian employers. That's what we're here to do. We want to serve students. We want to serve parents. We want to serve job seekers. We want to serve business owners. Now, here's the vision. How do we get there? We need to reorganize. Mm-hmm. We simply can't have 52 agreement holders across the province. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have doors where individuals are walking through a door for one type of service, but walking through another door for another type of service. And the best and easiest example of that for listeners is the door for disability clients and the door for generic everyone else, which is terrible language. Terrible. It's a terrible way to describe it, but we really didn't have a good way to describe what was happening. So we did have services for persons with disability, which is a is a really great service to have. You want the expertise, you want the knowledge in the people who deliver the service. But what we had were literally separate doors for those individuals in most cases across the province. So if I was disabled, I would go through one organization versus another rather than taking the approach of here's where employment services are delivered and behind the scenes, behind that door, we are prepared to support you no matter what your circumstances and no matter what your journey is in life, um, that we could serve diverse and inclusive populations was where we wanted to go. On the third episode of Innovating Employment, Angela Hoyt, president and founder of Evolution Group, joined the program to discuss effective approaches to organizational development and employer engagement strategies for service providers, including common challenges and misconceptions, providing examples of success stories, and tips to consider in your day-to-day practice. In this clip, Angela explains how the value of employment services to employers extends far beyond supplying pre-screened candidates. Employers are hiring these people, these same clients, these same job seekers off the street all the time on their own. (laughs) What value the employment service offers employers is that they have screened candidates. Even if they only know them for five minutes, they know them more than the employer knows them. And the organization not only has the candidates, but has the supports for the candidates. So let's say... um, if someone doesn't interview well, that the employment service can you know, encourage employers to interview people in a different way, like a working interview. Yes, things like subsidies are ways employers can benefit, but we don't want to sell the subsidy. We want to sell the strengths of the candidate and the, the ways that the organization can support to fill the gap. And when employers hire people off the street, they're not getting that. You know, They're not getting someone coming into their organization saying, you know what, it seems like you keep hiring and you hire and people leave and you hire and people leave. May I give you some, my perspective on what's going on and what you might be able to do about that? Or, you know what, this work environment, I'm seeing things that are unsafe. Can I help you to address those things? So in employer engagement, it's not just about matching a a job seeker to a job. It's about providing a service that, yes, involves finding candidates for a job, but also a whole host of other things that the employer and the employment service may never have considered. In a bonus episode, we spoke to Professor Mark Banks of the University of Leicester and Dr. Miranda Campbell of Ryerson School of Creative Industries at the Ryerson Faculty of Communication and Design's Future of Work Conference, recorded in partnership with CJRU 1280 AM 
This episode explored important questions and challenges that both employers and employees in the cultural sectors face in regards to the future of work. In this clip, Professor Banks discusses the idea that talent is a social construct and judgments of who is talented can be biased by social distinctions. Talent is, if you like, the, the kind of the gold, the kind of, you know, the mother load in the creative sectors. But I started to think a bit more about, well, what, what does that kind of mean? And where, where does those ideas come from? And I suppose the thing I explore in the book is how people can be talented in the sense that they have an objective capacity to do something. So, you know, maybe you can sing better than me. In fact, I'm sure you can. Or maybe I can play the piano better than you. Or, you know, I can uh, paint in ways that other people can't. And that would be a kind of a way in which we would look at talent as being embodied in the person and the qualities that they uh, display. So people can do things. They have capacities by virtue of being human beings. So that's a way of thinking about talent. But I think what tends to happen is that um, talent is also very much kind of socially shaped and socially constructed. And what I mean by that is that judgments of who is talented or how we recognize and identify talent is very much wrapped up with um, social divisions and social distinctions and how people are judged in a social sense. So regardless of how well you play a musical instrument, if you come from, let's say, an ethnic minority background, your chances of getting into the top music academy are much less. Um, similarly, if you come from a working class background, um, no matter how well you paint or no, no matter how well you kind of uh, are able to design, your chances of getting into um, the very best kinds of school or the very best kinds of job tend to be less. Now, if talent was just a natural capacity that everybody had, it would be equally shared and distributed in a kind of, you know, almost in a kind of random way. But what seems to happen is that judgments of talent are also kind of wrapped up with judgments about the person, how they present themselves, how they display themselves in an interview, how they dress, what their accent is whether they're kind of articulate or communicative. And at the point of selection, if you like, for the elite art school or the job interview, these things kind of matter and they shape how people are judged as being talented or not talented. On our fourth episode and our first in French, Denis Shank, executive director of the Northeastern Ontario Construction Association, joined the program to discuss employer perspectives on workforce challenges in the skilled trades. This included discussions on the unique challenges of working in Northern Ontario, opportunities for youth in apprenticeships, and best practices for bridging the skills gap. In this clip, Denis describes some of the challenges that young people face when looking at skilled trades as a possible career. For an étudiant, disons, il y a un manque de d'intérêt au niveau du secondaire, au niveau des écoles, au primaire même. Il y a un manque, il y a un manque de d'idées ou manque de de lack of knowledge du côté des parents aussi que c'est pas un des choix qu'ils donnent à leurs enfants disant que c'est une bonne chose à faire que il y a des les 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 salaires sont aussi bons que d'autres professionnels comme des professeurs d'école ou des nœuds qui faisaient les 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 salaires des docteurs. So ils pensent pas comme c'est un premier choix. On our fifth episode. Danielle Scott, Ontario Adult Apprenticeship Program Lead at Center for Skills Development, joined the program to discuss effective methods for supporting successful apprenticeships and promising models such as the shared apprenticeship model. In this clip, Danielle discusses how the shared apprenticeship model can build off of the existing interdependence of the manufacturing sector and how skilled apprentices benefit the sector overall. 
Someone in the manufacturing sector recently explained to me that the sector is really interdependent. Each company needs the others to do well because the work that they do is so intertwined. This has really driven in our community a lot of excitement about the project. There already is kind of a natural sharing of work and a natural culture of partnership within the manufacturing sector. And this is something that we are we are really building on. Going back to kind of things that we've learned, um, I think that's a huge learning piece for us is that we kind of thought that we were going to go in and establish this partnership or this network. And we realized that everybody kind of already knows who the other players are. They're just looking for someone to kind of take the lead um, administratively for them. So that was, I think that's been a really cool learning piece for us. And we anticipate that a shared apprenticeship model is going to increase the confidence of apprentices. If you can get out there and feel like you actually really have experience, not just the in-school training piece, but that you've actually tangibly done these things in the workplace, you're going to feel more confident moving through your apprenticeship. And stronger, more qualified apprentices are really good for everyone. Those skilled apprentices become skilled journey people, and that's good locally for industry, but also for our economy overall. On our sixth episode, Hannah Kitchingman, Program Director at Girls Inc. Limestone, joined the program to discuss employment readiness programming for girls and young adults. We also provide insights on how employment service providers within OCWI's research portfolio are working towards better serving youth. In this clip, Hannah describes how a focus on life skills enables the Smart Start Youth Employment Program to prepare its participants for their working lives after they've found employment. We talk about health relationships and how your healthy your relationship with your partner, your parents, your children are going to affect you going to work every day. Um, we talk about budgeting. Oh, my goodness. I'm now making my first paycheck and it's my first money that I'm making myself. Now, what do I do with it? Or I've had issues with money in the past. and I've never been really good at it. So now, you know, now that I'm starting to change my life, what do, how do I even start? How do I even go from making no money to now making money? We talk about self-esteem and confidence is a huge thing. Just helping the girls build that self-confidence in themselves and that self-esteem because that holds them so many young women back right now. Like you, you can't imagine when I meet girls and they're just like, um, I, 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 there's nothing good about myself or, you know, I don't like anything about myself or I'm not good or I'm not amazing. And just slowly building that confidence and you, and you know, it, it's a short program. It's only, it's only a 22 week program, but the changes that I can see in the girls, as the program progresses is so significant and it just, it just is so great for me. It's so great for Girls Inc. It's just amazing. So, you know, we talk about stress. We talk about coping with stress because let's face it, going to work for the first time in, in your life or the first time after you've had a few kids is stressful. You know, how are you balancing your work life and your personal life? How are you balancing all that stuff? Well, we talk about mental health, we talk about anxiety, how to kind of overcome that or work towards overcoming that. Uh, we talk about communication skills because a lot of our girls, they've been at home for most of their, their adult life, I guess you could say, and they've been talking just with their friends or they've only been talking with their kids. So how do they communicate with other adults or how do they become that professional part of themselves, bringing that out. And then we talk a lot about resiliency. How can these girls ba bounce back after something terrible has happened or something, you know, they've made a mistake or something to set them back from their goal setting? How do we, how do they build those skills so that they don't just give up in the end and they keep fighting for what they want? On our seventh episode and second in French, Leonie Chatat, 
founder and president of La Passerelle IDE, and commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, joined the program to discuss unique considerations and challenges when serving Francophone newcomers to Ontario. In this clip, Leonie shares some of the particular linguistic and cultural challenges facing clients who have immigrated from developing French-speaking nations. Déjà, il faut dire que nous recevons à peu près 70% des clients que nous recevons viennent des pays en voie de développement comme l'Afrique, euh, l'Haïti, les Caraïbes. Et euh, quand on parle euh, de l'immigration francophone, il faut parler de cette immigration avec beaucoup de spécificités parce que les immigrants francophones qui arrivent ne vivent pas euh, le problème, les défis d'intégration de la même façon. Déjà, en termes de perception. Je pense que quand les immigrants arrivent, ils arrivent avec une perception, par exemple à Toronto, qu'on peut travailler en français et on peut évoluer en français. C'est vrai, mais c'est pas aussi vrai. Parce que Toronto, c'est une ville majoritairement anglophone et il faut savoir qu'il faut avoir un minimum d'anglais pour pouvoir même trouver un emploi. Et il faut aussi savoir, dépendant si on vient de l'Afrique, qui est totalement différent en termes de contexte, savoir que la vie sociale ici au Canada, en termes de valeurs, d'approche, est totalement différente. Donc, il faut une bonne préparation près des parts. Les défis énormes que les immigrants francophones ont, c'est l'intégration au marché du travail, euh, la, 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 la connexion avec la communauté d'accueil et culturelle, euh, la compréhension de euh, un peu du système en général. On our eighth episode, Louis de Palma, Discoverability Project Coordinator, and featured guest Tiffany Kelly, program lead of the Disability Confident Employer Program, joined the program to discuss how to provide employers with the tools to make work practices more inclusive for persons with disabilities. In this clip, Louis sheds light on some of the false beliefs surrounding the employment of persons with disabilities. There's a myth about productivity that perhaps the people with disabilities, you know, they don't maintain the same productivity. And that's not true. What the research has shown, and, and this is based on 75% of SMEs that have hired persons with disabilities, what they say is that they either meet or they exceed productivity expectations. Uh, same thing with retention. What's really, really important for businesses when they hire someone, they want people to stay. Because when recruiting, when you don't have a person in place, can negatively affect your productivity and also it's expensive. So it's really important that, you know, people stay when, when a company hires them. So there's a myth around, well, perhaps, you know, people with disabilities, they don't stay as long. Well, the, the truth of the matter is that they have 20% lower job turnover rates uh, than persons without disabilities in the workplace. Attendance is another myth out there that perhaps that people with disabilities may not come to work as often as as, as other counterparts in, in the workplace. But what the research shows is that they have an 86% uh, rate that's either average or better when it comes to attendance. Uh, the, the last one I'll talk about is, 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 um, is safety. You know, so perhaps, you know, the safety record might not be as great. And the truth is that 98% uh, of persons with disability have a better uh, uh, safety record in the workplace than other folks. So, so there's some myths that we need to get over. And, and how do you get over them? You create awareness. And so it's extremely important that people understand the talent that's out there in their communities across Ontario. On our ninth episode, John Pergamet, business development manager at Sault Ste. Marie Innovation Centre, and featured guest Lisa Taylor, founder and president of Challenge Factory, joined the program to discuss preparing employees and employers for the future of work. In this clip, 
John shares a vision for training our emerging workforce for the future of work by leveraging partnerships with education institutions and employers. I think with the world changing as fast as it is and technology leading to more efficient and effective ways of doing everything, stuff with global interconnection to all of us and a whole new generation emerging into entering the workforce, I believe that uh, we need to rethink uh, how we train our emerging workforce and provide them with skills that they need to be relevant. So it would be important uh, that colleges and universities have strong connections to employers and other partners within communities. First, to understand the needs not only of today, but down the road as they come up and uh, new ways of teaching. This is easier said than done since sometimes the objectives of uh, these groups may not totally align. Uh, So it's important that they work together to uh, try to create that alignment. And I also believe that in information-based skills, intense economy, knowing means growing. And since it's changing so fast, how do we ensure programs and training uh, is meeting the pace of the change in the industry? Thank you for joining us for the first year of Innovating Employment. If you like the show, let us know on Twitter and Facebook. Links are in the description below. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Stay tuned for our exciting lineup of interviews for 2019. On January 22nd, we'll be joined by Helen Hirsch-Spence, CEO and founder of Top 60 Over 60, to discuss empowering older workers to adopt an entrepreneurial mindset. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.